Inside with Andrew Gunling and J.J. Devaney. Oh, yes. Caught offside from, I suppose, two undisclosed locations, both on holiday. Andrew Gunling and J.J. Devaney. What is up, brother? Oh, we've just watched the most heartbreaking, cruel, gut-rending, garment-rending, terrifying, just, just awful finish to a game for Atalanta. Yeah, I mean, look, we've seen it before. We saw it with Ajax uh, last season, Barcelona last season. Hell, we, we've seen this with PSG, it feels like, every year for the last few seasons. Uh, but there's something about it happening to an Ajax or an Atalanta in this case that makes it all the more heartbreaking because, you know, these are the teams that you just – like when Bar- when it happens to Barcelona, it's like, well, it'll be back next year. Like tomorrow is promised to nobody for clubs like Atalanta and Ajax. So, uh, Andrew, Andrew, I got to stop you there. I got to stop you there. Ajax are how many times winners of the European Cup? They have an academy that spews out talent like there's no tomorrow. This Jay, is Jay. such this is such a unique moment. Atalanta are this tiny little club from Bergamo who have the a budget you compare their budget to PSG's this is this is an absolutely different level loss i was preparing to talk about one of the biggest upsets in recent european cup history if they had just held on to that and uh, and now it's just it's devastating for them devastating yeah uh, it really is we're going to talk all about that cuz that game it literally ended basically seconds ago so it's uh, incredibly fresh in our minds still so we're going to talk about that in a sec also we'll look back on uh, last night's MLS is back cup final. Congratulations to the Portland Timbers. Uh, we've got a mailbag for you. A couple transfers are kind of uh, beginning to kind of, I guess, leak through here, including Spurs. How about that? A transfer. Um, so should be fun. Also, um, we're going to talk with Michael Cantaris of IFTV, Italian football TV. Uh, he's going to join us to discuss not only what just happened to Atalanta, uh, but also what's going on with Juventus in the last week, having fired Murcio Sarri and then hiring a legend, uh, albeit one with zero managerial experience in Andrea Pirlo. Um, so we'll talk with Michael Cantaris of IFTV as well. But let's start with the game that just occurred. I, I, as I was watching this, JJ, and I was thinking about us recording the podcast, and I was thinking about last night's MLS Cup final. Um, and, and like, isn't it funny to think, what it couldn't have been more than two months ago, when we were so, when like the cupboard was so bare of things to talk about that we were in our minds replaying the Zidane headbutt game. Like, yeah. Like, think of how far we've come and how quickly it's happened. We're like, it, it, the action is now coming so fast and furious. It's crazy. And it's, it's so much fun. I had my family, uh, so I'm at the beach right now, as are you. We're in two different beach towns, one in the Jersey Shore and one in Delaware. And so I'm the only one in my family that cares about or knows about soccer. And so everybody, though, was gathered around the TV just now because I was watching the end of this PSG Atlanta game. And as it's transpired, like it was 1 0, and I'm trying to explain to everybody what the Champions League is and what, and, and what an offside penalty is. <laughs> and I'm trying to do that while watching this comeback transpire right in front of us. It was oh, that's t- just a surreal kind of like viewing moment of such a big moment in Champions League history. Um, and you're but, you're trying to move salt shakers around to show you know the last defender and trying to explain offside while this momentous game is happening or almost right. momentous game, right? Well, no, still momentous. Don't be like that. Oh my god! Like so, all of a sudden you're like an Atalanta ultra. Give me a break. No, it's it's just they've been one of the stories of the last two seasons 
in certainly in Italian football and now on the European stage, the things they do, the way they play, the way Gasparini has them set up, it was just amazing. In fact, it's funny. It was a game really of two halves, Andrew, the old cliche, but it really was. Like Atalanta are that most un-Italian of Italian teams. Like they, they're attacking, they commit men forward, and yet they got that goal in the first half. And in the second half, they seemed absolutely spent and they started to fall backwards and became this kind of tough tackling, hard-nosed, resilient Italian outfit, only for it to come apart right at the end. It, w- it was amazing. They so clearly, you're right, they so clearly had nothing left from about, from about the, uh, maybe even before, but I was going to say from like the 75th minute on, they were on fumes. And I just wonder, going into a game like that, Atalanta, you know, you can't help but look across the field and see who's playing and say, okay, we're going we're gonna to have to deal with Neymar. But like, it has to seep into your mind, okay, no Verratti, uh, Mbappe we don't think is going to play, uh, Di Maria is suspended. Uh, Kurzawa is out. Like you, you look at this list of prominent PSG players, and you think this could be our moment. And then to see Mbappe come in in the 60th minute and what he brought the PSG in attack almost instantaneously. Yeah, you know, that I, I feel like not only the physical fatigue that had been setting setting in with Atalanta at that point, but the mental fatigue as well. To see him then come off the bench and bring that extra lift to PSG, it was it was gutting, and, and they nearly still pulled it off. I mean. But didn't you think, and I think you text me at that moment, didn't you think when, I don't know who played him in, it was great ball. And, um, and, and like, let's be honest, they're not like a regular Italian team because there was so much space at the back for PSG to find chances in the first half and in the second half. But didn't you think, Andrew, when that ball was played into Mbappe, and I think it was Caldara made that last chance, last gasp tackle, and the ball went wide for a corner. Didn't you think then, okay, PSG are not scoring? No, I texted you the complete opposite. I, what was my text? It was after that moment that I texted you and said, I just can't imagine this game ending without PSG scoring a goal. Because the chances at that point were coming so fast and furious. Seconds after that Mbappe attempt that you're talking about, that was around the 81st minute. It had to have been 45 seconds after that. Draxler found himself in space and skied one over the bar. It just felt like... The dam was going to break, and eventually it did. And it I, did I thought in, it in was a I, spectacular way. I, I thought I thought the exact opposite. I thought they'd ride their luck right to the end. There'd be more last gas tackles. Um, Sportiello wouldn't be beaten. I mean, a, a lot of the chances he made a couple of good saves, but a lot of the chances they had were just were weak. PSG looked completely off their game, and I thought well, they're going to hold out. This is going to go down as not our night, and yet here we are. Let's go down that road of what you just mentioned there about a lot of PSG's chances being weak. Let's go back to the start of the game. Oh. So your PSG, and I just mentioned, I don't even know if I got to all of them, but I just mentioned the laundry list of key figures for PSG that were out coming into this game tonight. But Neymar was playing for the first time in a couple of years in the Champions League. In, in key Champions League moments, they're going to have Neymar, this guy that they poured all this money into. And so you think, okay, this guy has the gravitas of whatever shakiness that PSG might be feeling coming into this with the injury situation, with it being a one-off situation rather than you know the cream rising to the top over two legs. Who knows what can happen in a one-off? The guy with the gravitas on this PSG team to settle the nerves of his teammates is Neymar. Not, not just in what he, can, what he could say to them off the pitch, but actions speak louder than words. He's the guy that, that everybody looks to to be the star of this team. And so three minutes and 43 seconds in, roughly, the ball comes to him with a one-on-one with the keeper, and that finish by him, yards wide. And you just think, 
what? Like, is that going to be the kind of day that this is? And then minutes after that, it comes to Neymar wide on the left. And it's kind of a two-on-two, but he's sort of ahead of play. And instead of, like, classic Neymar, you're Neymar. Like, you're one of the highest-paid players on on earth to score goals. Instead of putting one on net, he makes this feeble pass uh, across the mouth of goal that's easily intercepted. And you just start to think, what are you doing? You are here to win Champions Leagues. This is your moment. You are finally healthy. They paid all this money for you to be the man in these moments when Mbappe is hurt, when Di Maria is out, when Verratti's hurt. This is your time. Right. And to watch him play the way that he did on, 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 in the first half. Now, you know, I give him credit because he found himself at the center of almost everything positive that happened to PSG in attack. But the start of that game, I, I just couldn't help but think, uh-oh, this is... There have to be people sitting at Qatar right now watching this thinking, what did we spend all this money on? Yeah, I I, I kind of agreed with, I remember I remember at halftime it was Jamie Carragher got, kind of got into it with Schmeichel and Schmeichel was saying Neymar was non-existent in that first half and Jamie Carragher made the point and this is the one, I would agree with this. He was creating chances, Andrew. He was, get, oh, he, he was getting, he was, I would not say he was non-existent. He was at the center of everything, but his but finishing was so non-Neymar like. Yeah. He was in his head in those moments as if he saw his name up in lights and he just froze. He just panicked. But if we're, if we're to criticize a front line and a major signing for this team, it's got to be a Cardi who was an absolute ghost tonight. I mean, useless, terrible, irrelevant. And you talked about that weak effort that he put across the goal. I will give you both the the first chance he had that he put yards wide and the one he shanked. Remember when um, they gave the ball away? I can't remember. Was it Ottobor gave the ball away for Atalanta? And Neymar's in on the left-hand side. And he just he just he panics and he it flies into the stands. Fine. But the one he puts across the box, why does Icardi not make a run? What's he doing like? Well, I you're right. I can't get into his head. I think maybe it, it can be only one of two things because you're right. It's too strange to just suddenly stop your run for no reason. So it's either that he believes Neymar is going to do what most of us thought Neymar is going to do and shoot. And so he's kind Fair of hanging sure. back, hoping that, you know, Neymar is going to put one across goal. The rebound will come out in front and he'll be in position for it. Or he's thinking that if I continue this run any further, you know, either the defender or the goalkeeper are going to be in position to take this from me. I should stop here about, you know, 12 yards out or whatever it was. And then maybe Neymar plays one back to me when my defenders left me. Um, so I, I don't know. You're right. It was odd. And I'm sure, I guess Neymar was thinking that Arcardi was going to continue that run as well. He clearly was thinking that as that was the pass that he made. But I, so, I mean, something was off there. I guess it was a little bit of each of them. It didn't, it didn't look good for either of them. Um, yeah. How good it was, was, it was that, a weird night for him. How good was Palacic's finish for Atalanta? Oh, took it first time off a deflection like that. Uh, this game, I think, you know, we shouldn't just talk about PSG. It was, I know you had talked about this beforehand, that, you know, this was kind of the game that you, of all the matchups, you know, Bayern and Barcelona will steal the headlines because of their big name value. But if you could only watch one game from the quarterfinals, this was kind of going to be that one, I would think, in terms of the style of play. Um, because of how PSG want to attack and because of how Atalanta are not going to bend their system for anybody. Uh, and it, no. it really was fun to watch. And it's it's amazing to me the work rate that goes into into the counter press and the press from 
Atalanta, they closed off the passing lanes. They made Kaylor Navas try and kick it long. I mean, they didn't create enough, certainly not in that second half. And definitely they paid the price for being so energetic. But they've been so energetic all season. I mean, it's it's bound to catch up with you at some point. I, I'm just so good at I'm I'm good at as well for Bergamo, Andrew, because when we think about the early part of this pandemic, like one of the enduring images of, of, of it was the fact that the obituaries in the newspapers in that region of Italy were like running to 10 and 12 pages long. I mean, this is a place that's been so decimated by COVID-19. It would have been quite something in this in this terrible period we're having right now, if one of the epicenters or the early epicenter of this, this plague could rise up and, and do something amazing for the town and go even further in this competition, but it wasn't to be, but they've been brilliant. They really have. Yeah, they certainly have both in this competition, although they got off to such a shaky start and they settled themselves and, and they, they made a run that I think, you know, they and their fans can be proud of. Obviously, you know, this, this game will be a memory that they'll want to forget. Um, and, you know, you, you wonder now, like a, a club like Atalanta, you know, where, where do they go from here? I started this podcast by saying that tomorrow is, is not promised in terms of Champions League success to clubs like, you know, last year Tottenham, this year uh, you could say Atalanta. Yeah. Um, you know, so I don't know. And, and for them to be without one of their best players today uh, for this and still come that close, it's – there's going to be a lot of what ifs. When you watch that second half, you make such a good point. When you watch that second half and you see Gomez withdrawn, who's really like the creative force in the side, kind of number 10-ish player, if there is such a number 10 in, in, in Gasparini's system. And then you saw Zapata, who I've never seen a more exhausted player. In fact, the first round of substitutes in the second half, I thought, surely Zapata's got to come off now. He's got nothing left. And they left him on the field. But when you look at that, how can they possibly have absorbed not having Joseph Ilicic in the team? It it doesn't make sense, and and it it may have been the difference tonight. Yeah, quite possibly. Um, so there was so just just so we're clear here, PSG's recent history in this competition, some of the truly horrifying losses that they have had. Uh, there was no part of you tonight when you saw. Because they, you know, they after the goals were scored, you know, the camera would kind of pan into the stands, and you would see Di Maria hugging Verratti and other players. There was no part of you that thought, "Good, good for them." No, not a. There's not a piece of me. I can't muster that. No, just knowing the way they've been constructed, that like, look at those names, Andrew. They can bring Kylian Mbappe off the bench. Well, but that's not I mean, normal. It's because he's. They, it's because he can only give them thirty minutes tonight because of his health, not because like yeah, oh but, we're so but, loaded that Mbappe rides our bench. Come on, that's that's. Uh, I don't think I think you're spinning that. No, but bit. you can still start with you can still start with Neymar and Acardi up front, like and all those other guys. Okay, they're injured or whatever. Fine, but this team is still being assembled with a huge amount of riches. I I can't not for a second. The hilarity was was in them going out again for those few brief moments that we thought they were gone. Um, yeah, that's that's the fun of it. How can how can you how can you possibly look at this team 
and want anything other than hilarious disaster. Oh, no, no, no. Trust me, as I was watching this game tonight, I was I was hardly rooting for PSG. Um, right. But but I can but I could still watch it with a neutral eye. You know, like that. Oh, that, I, 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 I you to start this podcast and I didn't say that it, it wasn't momentous because Atalanta didn't win. Like it was still to see PSG score two goals in three minutes the way that they did at the end of this game, it's it was still a memorable occasion. This was this was like Andrew, a historic moment in this what are you, competition. What are you talking about? It's one of the best games, Not, it's one of the most captivating games I've watched in forever. Okay. Yeah. Well, you you checked yourself earlier. You were like, "Well, it, not momentous." Sorry. Do you, Andrew? Do I have to explain the English language to you now? A momentous defeat for PSG, a momentous moment for a small club like Atlanta, would be if they went one and went through. If PSG winning two one is what was supposed to happen. However, the game was amazing. Oh, but but not in this form. It, I don't think anybody could have drawn it up the way that it happened. Is what I'm saying. No, there's no, there's no, there's no chance. It was uh, on the doorstep of another terrible defeat and get two goals in the 89th and then two minutes into stoppage time. I think was it was incredible to watch. You just you're just a miserable guy. Yeah, it really was. So sad. So I enjoyed uh, it. What do you want me to say? <laughs> that was it. I I just got those words out of you. J, you hear that, everybody? JJ PSG won, and JJ just said he enjoyed it. Wow, things have. Have really changed in a short amount of time. You're uh, such a manili- you're you're a manipulator. I'm sick of you already, and we're only we, 17 minutes into this podcast. Should we go through some of the other uh, the other matchups to come over the next couple of days? We'll go through them quickly here. Uh, Atletico Madrid and RB Leipzig on Thursday. Um, <laughs> I guess another one of these clubs that people will have a hard time rooting for in RB Leipzig. Uh, it's. <laughs> You know, it's it's a weird situation for them, uh, simply because like this whole run and much of their season has kind of been centered around their best player in Timo Werner, and now here they are. Um, who knows? You know, much like Atalanta, uh, RB Leipzig, I would give a, a better chance, of course, with the way they're constructed to get back to a place like this. But you know, now Timo Werner is on Chelsea, and so it's kind of a different RB Leipzig than the one that. Uh, would have been playing in this competition had it been when it was originally scheduled to be played. That that still doesn't sit well with me. He should absolutely be involved in this game. This yeah. season's not over. I, I, very... I know I know it wouldn't happen and it's because of the pandemic as well, but I just think he should be taking the field for Leipzig tomorrow. I, I, I feel very strange about this one. There is part of me that thinks the way that contracts were constructed, like I, I get... When, when something is contractual, like it, it is almost by definition going to be held to the letter of the law, to the letter of the contract. But I don't know, there was something strange to me about players needing to sign these like month-long extension contracts so they could finish out the season. Like Part of me is almost surprised that these contracts aren't worded in a way where just like you would automatically remain with your team until the season reaches its completion. But like to have these guys just leave in the middle uh, of these runs, both domestically and now in Europe, yeah, it's kind of it is kind of strange. And you're right; it doesn't doesn't sit well with you. But whatever this this year is just like nothing nothing is normal this year. So like everything feels, no matter how weird something is, everything now feels normal. Uh, no, Friday, and, and before you get to that, it's still going to be a great matchup between Nagelsmann and Diego Simeone. That is still going to be tactically really very interesting. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, and you wonder too with this like one-off situation, Atletico Madrid has had 
I mean, losing two finals and, and you know other losses to Real Madrid. They, they've had so many deep runs in this competition. Who knows now? Maybe this one-off format with the you know with the defensive style that they play, they're hard to break down, but still good in attack. Uh, who knows? Maybe this maybe this is their year. Um, we'll find out. We'll, they'll take their first step towards that being the case tomorrow, Friday. Bayern Munich and Barcelona. I guess ultimately, to me, with this, no matter what happens in this game, nothing is going to change my mind that Bayern Munich is the better of these teams. And I believe, even with Manchester City posing a, a pretty strong threat, I believe that Bayern Munich is the best team left in this competition. However, <laughs> however, I will always be absolutely terrified of an angry Messi in a one-off situation. I, I totally agree with you. And I think he's particularly motivated. From what we saw at the weekend against Napoli, it's hard not to think that this guy is absolutely laser focused on what needs to be done. Um, now, did they have little moments of luck in that game? They certainly did. Dries Mertens' early miss and Lonye's, um how shall we say it, not properly verified shove in the back into another like he literally knocked guys over like dominoes to get that header in and yet he knocked Deme into Koulibaly and yet that's definitely not a shove that's not going to be reviewed that's fine that's a goal but whatever but but Messi's performance was was very very good and and again he just gives them I hate saying this about Barcelona but he always gives them a chance he keeps them in games I know that little engine that could Barcelona. <laughs> it's so strange to talk about them like that. I, it's going to be a fascinating game again because Hansi Flick and the way this Bayern Munich team have been playing uh, after the break and before the break and what they did to Chelsea. Oof. Yeah, you mentioned Hansi Flick. I saw Jerome Boateng talking about him and basically saying that Flick has kind of made football fun again for this team. And it, it's hard to envision like being on Bayern Munich and winning all this stuff and like, and, and it not being fun, but you know, there, there's more to it, I suppose, than, than winning that style, it's man management. And Hansi Flick has clearly reinvigorated this side. They have been truly fun to watch both before and after the restart. Um, and I, I don't know if I'm making a pick here, I would say Bayern Munich, but boy, it's hard to bet against Messi. Uh, and then Saturday, JJ Manchester city and Lyon, uh, this kind of mirroring today's matchup in terms of David versus Goliath. Um, Leon with a, a bit more history in this competition, certainly than Atalanta. But nevertheless, I saw 538, uh, the website has pitted this. I guess they have their rankings of clubs in Europe. And they, uh, they have Manchester City as their number one overall club right now in Europe. And uh, Leon is 40th. So this is, I mean, the gap between these two is utterly massive. Uh, Lyon struggling domestically. However, they do come into this competition against Manchester City, this quarterfinal, knowing that they have had success against them. Remember last year in the group stage, they beat Man City and then drew against them. Yeah. Um, so uh, I'm guessing that they will have that in the back of their minds and, and really show no fear going into this. Yeah, it was it was stunning to me, though, how many chances City created against Real Madrid if they get even anywhere close to that against Leon, it's hard to see anybody other than City going through. But 
Leon will be bolstered by the fact that they've been able to handle City in the past. So um, Raheem Sterling was in his post-match after the Real Madrid game was very clear. You know, he wasn't writing off Leon, but hard not to see City into the semifinals now. Yep. Uh, so, of course, next week we will recap all of uh, the remaining quarterfinals and look ahead to what will be the semifinals as this competition is unfolding very, very very quickly. Uh, we go from that now to a similar tournament that has now concluded. JJ, the MLS is back, is back no more. Portland, the Portland Timbers knock off Orlando City to take home what is hopefully the one and only MLS is back cup. Uh, while this was a lot of fun, uh, it only happened because of these extenuating and pretty terrible circumstances. Um, so as much fun as it was, I don't I don't really want to see it again. I hope that makes sense. There are some people that I saw getting, I don't know, is it fair to say that people have been getting a little bit carried away in that they found this tournament to be so much fun that they, like, aren't you seeing the sentiment that there are people out there that want this to be, like, in some way a permanent fixture now to the MLS calendar? They want it to be, like, a tournament at the start every year. and like a, like um, a, a community shield on steroids. Yeah, <laughs> and they've been talking about maybe not just you know the the regular season in MLS, but they've been talking about well, why don't we do something similar with the Open Cup? Which, I mean, sounds great if you're an MLS side, and would be horrific if you're one of the lower league teams that wants to be involved. So you're right; people are getting excited, uh, prematurely excited about about this tournament. Yeah, uh, but at any rate, let's talk about last night's game. Portland Timbers, they do it. 2-1 is your final score. Uh, let's talk about how they did it, um, JJ. I-, I thought that Portland really showed Orlando City a lot of respect in the way they came out and played this game. I mean, they really emphasized defending. They sat back very deep and were just willing to allow Orlando to have the ball and then hope to get them on the counterattack or on set pieces which are also important, as we saw. Um, you're right. Uh, pieces are important. Valeri's delivery for the first goal was was stunning. It really was. I think the goalkeeper um, could have done a little bit better for Orlando Galisi, but at the same time, what a ball in. You know how they did it, though, really, Andrew? If there was one thing I noticed about Orlando, is like their com- their combinations throughout this tournament in or around the box were really, really good. Pereira, Nani. Diego Chara was just in there breaking everything up by foul and by legal means. Like you'll notice when he got his first yellow card, when he got his yellow card, which was in the second half, the referee points to all the places where the persistent fouling had been. Like he should have got a yellow card within 20 minutes, within the first 20 minutes of the first half. That's when that should have happened. But that aside, he's so good at breaking up the play and getting Portland on the front foot. That's how they beat them. It it wasn't much more complicated than that. Good set pieces, strong defense, and an excellent uh, counterattack. Well, I'm glad you mentioned Diego Char because he really is that player that everyone hates playing against and yet, at the same time, everyone is desperate to have on their team. Like, he's just that guy that, that winning teams seem to have a player like him. Um, and you're right, he was. He is, he is a disruptor. He's made a, a really, really um, 
prominent career off of playing that role for Portland. So it's it's what he does when you've got difficult. Also, Giovanni uh, Savarese's decision to start Valeri was, I think, was key. You know, it was like, look, we've been managing his minutes throughout the tournament. This is ninety minutes. He's going to have a break afterwards. Get him into the game from the start, and and that proved to be proved to be really a, a prescient idea. Also, um, Orlando just didn't get going. They didn't click. They couldn't get their usual game going. And they were frustrated. And you could see by the end of the game, they were very frustrated by Savarese's and Portland's tactics. And and look, they've got to accept that. They are one of the coming teams under Oscar Pereja. And, te- and other teams, opposition teams, are going to find ways to annoy them and to upset them. And Portland got under their skin in a real way last night. They did. Nani was off. Now, he, I, I give him credit because it only takes one moment for him to, to assert himself into a game. And he did that. In the 39th for Orlando's goal, he created space and played a, a great ball to Pereira, who stuck at home to equalize. But Nani was not himself, and you're right. Maybe that is some fatigue from the tournament, and maybe that is some of Portland just being physical with him, which they were all throughout. Uh, and just the way Portland was defending, it was always going to be really hard for uh, Orlando City to do anything in the final third, and that kind of bore itself out. And, you know, I felt bad, too, a little bit for Orlando, um, just because, like, if you look at how... Portland wound up getting that winning goal. Go back. So the winning goal came in the 66th minute off of the corner. But before that, back in the 63rd, you know, Orlando have been fundamentally, they've been pretty sound throughout this tournament. And, you know, not just because they're a good team and they're well coached, but like they haven't really been prone to many mental errors and lapses throughout the course of this. And yet 63rd minute, Jao Moutinho narrowly escaped a red card, uh, made a mistake on the edge of his box, tried to make up for it nearly denied what could have maybe been considered a goal-scoring opportunity. I think they got it right, giving him just a yellow. But like that bad mistake from Moutinho led to a first corner kick, which was cleared. But then the second corner kick was not. That was the one where Williamson took, takes the shot and it's deflected in by Zubaric. Um, so like these, these mistakes, maybe you can get a, away with them against some teams, but against Portland in a final, um, mistakes like that that lead to set-piece opportunities for them, it's – you can't do it, um, and that proved to be one of the differences in the game last night for uh, for Orlando. Still a great run for them, though. Oh, absolutely. I mean, expectations were pretty low for this team going into it. Um, I, as much progress as you think they were making under Oscar Pereira, you couldn't think they'd be that um, that good in this tournament, and they really were. Yeah, uh, a couple takeaways from the tournament as a whole. Just a few things on my mind, and, and jump in with whatever you have as well. Um, you know, not that I would have expected much different, but I don't know. I felt like I felt like this tournament was taken as serious as any as any tournament MLS teams could play in, as as MLS Cup as MLS postseason would look like, or uh, even Concacaf Champions League. It felt like everybody was incredibly invested. Hell, JJ, Atlanta fired their manager off of the performance in this tournament. So, props to everybody for kind of just like putting the miserable situation that we were in sort of out of their minds and just immersing themselves in, in the competition. I, I think there was such a break between the first two games of MLS and then the MLS tournament that, that players, their sense of professionalism, and not just professionalism, they love playing, they want to play. It just clicked into gear and they saw a small compact tournament and the, the competitive juices were flowing. Every team went hell for leather to try and win this thing. You're absolutely right. Also, probably in the back of their minds, 
they're considering the fact they may not get any football after this tournament. So they're like, you got to make hay while the sun shines. And they really did. They got stuck in and the games were games were super competitive. Yeah. Um, a couple other things for me. I felt like there were certain players that really used this tournament as a showcase for themselves and almost a springboard to kind of like leveling up. Uh, in terms of how they're viewed, like I'll give you a couple examples. I mean, ha- look look at last night. Um, you know, for for a generation now, Portland has been Diego Valeri's team, um, and while he is still excellent, uh, you know, not that not that Sebastian Blanco is a young player by any means. He's been doing this for years for Portland, but I now kind of look at Portland as being Sebastian Blanco's team. Um, and I feel like this tournament was was a showcase for him to kind of prove that. You know, Valeri having sort of a, a bit of a, a reduced role coming off the bench, even though, st- like you said, started last night. But I feel like it's it's Blanco's team now, and he was phenomenal throughout this tournament for them. I don't think they get to this point, obviously, without him. Um, and uh, I, I was going to say something similar about Diego Rossi and his performance with LAFC. I know they went out prematurely, um, but, you know, LAFC, that's that's Carlos Vela's team. And in the end, that it, it that will still be how they're viewed, and people will wonder – who knows how far they could have gone had he been there. But I couldn't help but watch Diego Rossi in this tournament and just think that guy is outstanding. And he is he is now he is now given LAFC yet another player of superstar status in this league that teams are going to have to account for once him and Vela are both on the field together again. I think this tournament would have been instructive for Greg Berhalter as well, looking at the performances of Brendan Aronson and looking at Akinola at Toronto those are two those are two players young players that he could he could focus on and 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 he must have seen things that made him very happy from those two players as well and i think Pereira for Orlando we're talking about you know a creative player in Valeri and it's you know Portland's being Valeri's team well Pereira's kind of taking the reins at Orlando and is kind of orchestrating that attack and he's kind of stepped in there. Those are the three players that kind of stood out for me. Yeah, and those are the players. And then the last bit on this that I wanted to mention are uh, some of the teams uh, that come out of this, I think, with us viewing them maybe a little bit differently. Um, you know, like by the time you're listening to this podcast, this, the MLS regular season has restarted with um, Nashville and FC Dallas playing one another. And like you wonder who are the teams coming back now into MLS's regular season that we're going to think differently of. Um, obviously I look at Orlando city and the run they just made. And I don't think that this was just kind of a fluky tournament run. I, I really believe that Oscar Perea is a top notch manager and Nani has, has kind of found his legs in this league and, and the player that he can be. And like you said, Perea, uh, Pereira, it was phenomenal all tournament as well. Columbus is another team. Yeah. You know, I know maybe their run ended sooner than they thought, but what we saw from Nagby, what we saw from Zelarian. Uh, their new signing. Uh, I think Columbus is going to be a force to be reckoned with. And you just mentioned Brendan Aronson. The Philadelphia Union are in a really interesting spot. And I wanted to mention them too as my my third team here. Um, if they keep this thing together, I think the Union, between what they did last season and then what they did and how they played in this tournament, I think they've kind of announced themselves to the Eastern Conference now as the next team that that is going to be able to contend, especially with Joseph Martinez out and Atlanta being in the state that they're in. Um, you know, I, I think that there is every reason for union supporters uh, and for that team to believe that they can go on a run and, and potentially win the Eastern Conference. However, they are in a major crossroads moment here, JJ, because Mark McKenzie uh, is on the radar of Celtic. Brendan Aronson is on the radar of German clubs. 
they could lose these guys. And you just wonder, okay, will it be kind of two steps back and they'll have to kind of rebuild on the fly, still be a playoff team, but maybe lose that stature of being a team, like I'm saying, that can contend for the Eastern Conference. If they keep it intact, this team can do great things. I really think that, but that may that may be difficult for them to do. We'll see. Uh, Minnesota United fit, fit that bill for me, Andrew. And that was just listening to John Champion last week on the podcast. People should go back and listen to John Champion to just hear the plans that Minnesota are hatching to be a dominant force in MLS going forward. There's a lot going on there, and there's more signings to come. And uh, this showing by Adrian Heath's team in, in the MLS's back tournament might be, might be, because you don't know. It is MLS. Things change very quickly. It might be a portent of things to come. Could very well be. But this was fun. This uh, MLS, they they helped us out, man. These games at 8 in the morning, it was kind of fun, like waking up and just having that bang right out of the gate. Um, so, you know, it was shaky coming in with Nashville situation with Dallas's situation. Obviously it is not ideal to hold a tournament where two teams, uh, are, are not able to take part because of health reasons. Um, but like we said before, just like, there's so many things that we're just kind of charting up to sign of the times. And, um, given the amount of time that Don Garber and the league and, and the teams had to prepare for this, uh, and put this thing on under these circumstances, like props to honestly to everyone involved from from the top of the league all the way down to the lowest staff member who was there uh, production crews for both Fox and ESPN uh, I thought everyone was was great under under really really difficult circumstances so you know honestly like kudos and, and total respect to everybody uh, for the way it went down uh, I'll tell you what let's go ahead we're gonna take a quick quick break here when we come back on the other side uh, we'll do a little bit more on Atalanta. Uh, and what was truly a devastating defeat for them today. And we'll also talk about everything happening at Juventus. Weird, weird times right now for Italy's uh, number one club for the moment. Uh, we'll do that with Michael Cantaris of IFTV. He joins us next. Don't go anywhere. Oh, back now. Caught offside. Oh, JJ, there's a lot to talk about from Italian football. Obviously, what happened this afternoon in the Champions League for Atalanta against PSG. And what's gone on over the course of the past week with Maurizio Sarri and Juventus and Andrea Pirlo. Uh, there is a lot to get to here. Let's do it right now with uh, Michael Cantaris of IFTV, Italian Football Television. He joins us on the program to talk about all of these things. Michael, what's up? How are you? How are you guys doing? Thanks for having me, uh, first and foremost. And uh, I, like I was saying a little bit before, not feeling the best right after that. Just We just finished watching the PSG versus Atalanta game. And it was a tough one to swallow, that's for sure. Michael, um, are you as enthusiastic a Calcio man as, as Mike Messina is because, or as Marco Messina is? Because if this is the case, this is a crushing blow for IFTV, this defeat. It is. Uh, I'm a huge Serie I don't have a specific Serie A team that I support. I just really love the league as a whole. Mm. So, and I've been rooting for Atalanta this whole season. They, they're just like, uh, they... They embody everything, the underdog, the hardworking kind of team that you just want to support. And this real this game really crushed me because uh, I've been following Atalanta the past couple of seasons very closely just because they've been doing so well. But uh, this game in particular, it was a tough one. And yeah, I'm, uh, we're both huge Serie A fans, uh, first and foremost. So it was a tough one, like I said. Yeah, I'm just I'm curious for your perspective on it because JJ and I kind of just viewed it as, you know, the feeling that must have run through Atalanta when their legs are starting to go and you see Mbappe come off the bench. And then it, you know, it hits the 75th minute or so and he, 
you just see they're running on fumes and you're just looking at that clock and wondering, is, is this actually going to get to 90 and the scoreline is still going to be one nil? I mean, was that, was that pretty much your line of thinking as well, that they had nothing left and it was just kind of like hoping and praying that PSG would just continue to miss the net as they were doing throughout? Kind of similar. Yeah, I kind of agree. I mean, in the first half, I thought Atalanta were pretty organized, compact, attacking the game, didn't look scared. But as soon as the second half started, I feel like they were they were heavy. They had made more mistakes. They were sloppier. Their defense, bad passes. And they were looking, it looked like they didn't want to go for another goal, which Atalanta always do. They always go for another goal. It looked like they, they were scared and they were defending back and nervous. So I I feel like uh, it was that. I mean, PSG were missing a lot of chances. So we're like, okay, maybe it is destiny for Atalanta to do something here. Uh, then just when you think, I literally had the Instagram posts ready for the social media to post about Atalanta uh-huh. to to win it. But 90th minute, Marquinhos got got a goal of the 93rd, another blow. So it was it was a tale of two halves for sure for Atalanta, and it was it was a very very opposite side side of the game for them for sure. Mike, I, I have two questions for you before we move off this crushing blow because we we got to talk about something else. I don't want you to start crying, but but let's talk about Gasparini for a second and those second half substitutions. Do you think he got those right? I was a bit surprised that he didn't take Zapata off earlier. And I was a little bit shocked, not shocked, maybe he was struggling, but maybe when they when they took off Gomez, they had nothing going forward then. Yeah, I agree with you. There's a lot there was some criticism of Gasperini's choices. He usually like we there's really not that much to criticize usually for him. He usually makes the right substitutions. But Gomez, who's a captain, who's the leader that really orchestrates the, the team, he unfortunately got a injury. I don't know what it was exactly, but he got subbed off. And once he got subbed off, you could tell like they, they lack leadership, they lack direction, and he was a huge factor of uh, conceding the two goals for sure. Uh, by him coming off, Mike um, Ilicic not having him, that that's got to be. When we look back at this game and we look at the position that Atalanta got themselves into in that first half, if you have a target like or a front player like Ilicic with the goals he brings and the movement he brings, I mean, maybe this game could have been different if he was there. A hundred percent. We are actually saying on our podcast before that we'd rather have both sides fully fit rather than what it is now. Just because we feel like Ilicic brings a whole new level and calm, calmness to the game, as Papu Gomez does. And he's another leader of the squad. And he was missed tremendously this game. His vast, his vast experience, how great he is with his passes. He's just a very smart player. And he could have helped a lot. And maybe the game could have ended differently with him on for 100% for sure. Last one for me on Atalanta. Um, I'm curious what the perspective is of their situation in that, like you said, this is this is an underdog story here. Is the belief that this was kind of their moment and now it's gone and you don't know if it'll be back again? Or is the belief, you know, this is the beginning of something special? You know, we could very likely see them back in a situation like this a year from now, two years from now, whatever. Uh, that's a great question, actually. Um, last season they actually secured Champions League this season and last season when they secured it no one thought they were, they're going to secure it again including myself we thought they're going to sell their players and just dismantle as a lot of smaller teams do when they get a good squad but this team didn't sell any players they fortified their team and secured Champions League for a second consecutive year in the Serie A which is incredible 
So it looks like uh, the big question is, are they going to keep building or are they going to sell this time? And if they keep building, they're going to build, uh, let's see how, how well they can build something. If they can build something special and actually want to become a big team in Italy, or if it was just a, a stint of a couple of years. I think everyone's thinking that. Mike, uh, let's get to the big team in Italy that have done something that I, I, I was watching your podcast yesterday on IFTV and uh, there was there was some varied reactions um, from the group about the appointment of Andrea Perlo. But um, I suppose let's start with Sarri. You know, winning the league was never going to be enough for the Agnelli family. And so I'm presuming you weren't shocked that Sarri was sacked. Um, if, if Sarri, yeah, this was, this was such a, this was so back and forth. We talked like a half an hour on this on our podcast because it's so, there's so many factors to this, mm. but ultimately we do think him being eliminated by Leon was the, was the major factor. Obviously there was also rumors saying that Ronaldo didn't want Sarri in the team, that they didn't get along with him. There's rumors that Dybala didn't get along with him. So it was one of those, either pick me or either pick him. He didn't really have the locker room, and they weren't playing the football that they wanted to play. But then there's, I actually wanted him to, would have stay, wanted him to stay another season because we know Sadi plays a peculiar football. Mm-hmm. And, but his biggest thing that he needs is a midfielder, uh, is a midfield, and that's what Juve lacks in the most. If you don't give Sadi a midfield, he can't play his style of football. So that's why it, he was more of the scapegoat than anything. Hmm. Because uh, in the transfer market, they really avoided that midfield, which was their problem since Pirlo left, since Pogba left, since Vidal left. And having Pirlo as head coach was another uh, was another big surprise, to be honest. Because... Uh, a team like Juve, you'd think they'd be prepared, have something ready. Right. And out of nowhere, they bring Pirlo, someone who never coached a single match, who was just appointed the U23 uh, squad. And a few days later, he was promoted as a head coach. <laughs> so a lot of people are saying this could be a transitional year for Juve, saying, okay, we're going to miss out on uh, a champion, uh, a championship and try to go for a top manager the year after, having Pirlo more as a caretaker more than anything. But yeah, this was a huge shock. I don't think a lot of, I'm sure a lot of people didn't expect this to, uh, expect Pirlo to be coached, that's for sure. So yeah, I have, we have questions, of course, about the Pirlo element of this. Um, firstly, from the Aventus supporter standpoint, um, are they torn? I mean, on the one hand, you have a club legend. I mean, I, I imagine there's a lot of Juve fans who will enjoy seeing him patrolling the sidelines, just a familiar face that they all, that, that's beloved. Uh, on the other hand, like you said, zero zero experience for a club that you feel like is on the verge of at least being able to contend for a Champions League. Uh, where Where's the fan base on this? So I think, I feel like in the beginning, the fan base was more like shocked as everyone was. But then when you take a minute to think about it, who are the realistic options that Juve have? Pochettino was a big one, but Pochettino is extremely expensive. I think he wanted 10 million euro salary, which is crazy. And Pochettino... Uh, he's, he's obviously not a top coach. You can say he's a good coach. He brought you know Spurs to the Champions League final, but uh, I think Juve Juve fans are probably more accepting, as they're gonna probably wait, see how Pirlo does for the season, and maybe gamble, see what Zidane's gonna do. If Zidane's gonna stay at Real Madrid, see what Pep Guardiola's gonna do. Who knows? Maybe see what Klopp's gonna do, 
and try to and try to gamble there instead of trying to just spend big money on a manager that that's not really guaranteeing a Champions League trophy like Pochettino and who's crazy expensive. So I feel like it's more of a Juve waiting, waiting and not taking the bait immediately and hoping for the future that a, a, a better manager pops up for them. That is that is a heck of a risk to take as such a big club. M- Mike, I have a question for you, and you may not be able to answer this. In fact, I'll be surprised if you can. Does anybody know what kind of football Pirlo will like to play? Could, because he's been given this this team that it, it, it feels like the parts of like three or four different managers. Ronaldo, and then you've got a midfield of, you've got Aaron Ramsey in there, and then you've got so, someone like, you know, we know Artur is coming from Barcelona, and it just seems to be like bits and pieces all over the place. So what style do you think Pirlo would like to play? Has he, has he spoken about what he wants to play? I'm glad you brought that up, JJ. You'd think I wouldn't know that, but we do IFTV 24-7, and we always do our research. We're always spot on. So I wanted to say a few weeks ago, Pirlo was actually doing a little interview. I believe it was Instagram Live, and this was when he was getting his license to be a coach. And he actually said, because, you know, this is brand new stuff, because Pirlo never coached, as we said before, hasn't coached a single match, nothing with the youth, nothing, nothing, nothing. But he says his preferred formation is a 4-3-3 with his players playing dynamic, explosive wingers on the side and playing attractive football. Okay. So I, I know actions speak louder than words, but we haven't seen any actions yet. So we can only go based off what Pirlo said. So 4-3 formation, uh, great football and uh, very attacking uh, coming from Pirlo himself. So, you know, I'll be ex- I got to wait to see how it does because also Saudi – is similar to that. Sadi plays a lot of similar tiki-taka football, one-two passes, attractive football, but he couldn't do it because he didn't have the tools to at Juventus. So we're going to have to see, we're going to have to see um, what Pirlo could do if Juve actually fortify their squad to his liking. And from there, we'll see. Right now, we can only assume take a shot in the dark. Mike, Which is what Juve are doing. That, exactly. You said it, JJ. <laughs> Uh, Mike, you mentioned before that Cristiano Ronaldo may have had a hand in Sarri's departure. Is there any reason to believe that he may have had a hand in Pirlo's arrival? Uh, yeah, this is a, Andrew, this is a tough question because no one – you can't – I can't – like like you said with the Sarri departure, there could have been – there were some rumors about that. For the Pirlo arrival, I thought about this. I was thinking why, why would – would anyone want him to come? Not saying he's not a good coach. We just don't know him. He's a brand new person. But Pirlo does have, he demands respect. He's he's of a caliber of a footballer that you know of. And he has great relationships with everyone. He's a really respectable guy. But for this one, may, I think it was a shot in the dark for everyone. I, I guess it was more like, I guess we'll try it out. And I'm sure he doesn't have a bad reputation with anybody in the football world. So it's more of, of let's see how he does, and then next season maybe we'll get a better manager if we need to be. So I'm not sure if anyone really picked him out specifically from the players, but I think it was more of a shot in the dark, if I had to take a guess. Mike, final one for me. I suppose with the way the next season is setting up, which will be upon us very, very soon, are you looking at Inter now? Inter uh, as, as, as a possible chance for them to assume the role of, uh, of kings of Italian football? Do you see something coming more from Lazio? Can they kick on? Will Napoli be resurgent? Will Atalanta be? What's going to be the storyline going into next season? 
this next season is going to be so interesting, JJ. First of all, for we were split on the podcast. On the podcast, we asked who are the favorites to win the Scudetto, the championship, or the Serie A for next season. Half of us said Juve, half of us said Inter. I said Inter. I think Inter has what it takes. Conte is a fantastic coach. Conte is going to uh, – Inter is also going to spend big uh, again. And this is Conte's second year with this team. So Inter, for me, in my eyes, 100% are the favorites. Juve have an agent squad. Juve have a brand-new manager. And then Juve uh, are focused mostly on the Champions League, while Inter 100% focused on the Serie A. So I think uh, Inter has what it takes to do it. Obviously, it wouldn't be crazy if Juve win it. But I think the pressure is on Inter. No more excuses because Inter lost it. The excuses were all brand new squad, brand new coach. You can't be using that excuse when you spend that much money on the second year, especially if your competition took a dive down. So it's going to be extremely interesting, especially because the other four Serie A teams are fortifying. Milan's getting stronger. Lazio getting stronger. Atalanta probably getting stronger. Roma getting stronger. So... It's gonna it's gonna be uh it's gonna be a feast next season for sure. Who's gonna be fighting for that top spot? It's fascinating. This league has felt like kind of a foregone conclusion for almost the, the past decade, and that is seemingly not the case anymore. So it should be really, really cool as this continues to transpire. At IFTV official, Italian Football TV and uh, ItalianFootballTV.com. Check them out. These guys do such great work covering Syria. Uh, Michael Contaris, thanks so much. We appreciate your time, man. Guys, thank you so much for having me on. I hope I taught, said a little bit something more on Serie A, and I hope you guys support it a little bit more just by me being on. But thank you guys so much. It was a, it was a pleasure. Well, Michael, if you can get us some uh, Calcio swag, get us some of those nice T-shirts, then uh, you got a deal. For sure. Shoot us a DM and we'll hook you guys up. Cheers, brother. <laughs> awesome, care, guys. Thank you so much. Have a good one. Interesting stuff. Uh, Juventus, like I said, this club that has just like had this stranglehold over that league for – uh, almost a, like a generation, it feels like uh, they are at a crossroads. Um, you wonder if, like, bringing in a manager with truly zero experience, are they are they kind of like thrusting themselves in not a, not a rebuild? That's not the right way of saying it. They still have these world class players. They still have Ronaldo, but like, yeah, they but pulling the whipcord a, a little prematurely from from that standpoint. No, I, I think Sari and simply because Ronaldo was there, Sari couldn't make that work. Because of what Sarri requires from his from his his front players, I mean Ronaldo's just not going to he's going to be static until until things happen around him and then he bursts into life. That's just the way he is. So that was never a fit. And I also felt that you know they they'd signed Ronaldo or they'd signed a load of players Juventus and and then they were like okay, and Sarri just happened to be available and they and they took him. It, it was never going to be a fit. This this feels like they've looked at Real Madrid with Zidane. They've looked at Pep Guardiola at Barcelona. They've looked at Hansi Flick coming through at Bayern Munich. And they've kind of thought, hey, let's appoint from within. Look at how these great or great players, Hansi Flick obviously wasn't, but look look how these other great players have worked out. Let's roll the dice. I, I agree with Mike. They're taking a gamble here. There's Again, there's a really good article by Jonathan Wilson in The Observer where he talks about how it, for super clubs, they can just give it a go. It doesn't matter. They don't lose. Somewhere right now, Eddie Howe is just waiting by his phone longingly for it to ring. Well, it would make more sense than appointing Andrea Pirlo. Wow, what a statement. From Bournemouth to Turin. 
Uh, let's see, mailbag? Mailbeasy, indeedy. Um, caughtoffsidepod at gmail.com on the old interwebs. Uh, caughtoffsideespn on Instagram and at COSoccerPod on the Twitter. Um, so Barry uh, tweeted us and he thought it was outlandish of me to suggest that Trent Alexander-Arnold was redefining the fullback position. He talked about Danny Alves and that Danny Alves redefined the fullback position in that great Barca side. And he wanted to know more about why I think that about Trent Alexander-Arnold. Well, it comes down to this, um, just to be brief. I think he controls games from fullback. And when have we ever said that about a fullback? I mean, Danny Alves, absolutely right, was one of, you know, the great fullbacks of our, of, the last 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, ever probably. And he played in a brilliant Barcelona site, but he didn't run that team. Um, Trent Alexander-Arnold leads the European and English champions for key passes from fullback. Um, as Jamie Carragher stated, it's like having a creative midfielder at fullback. He does the things that a creative midfielder would do, and he do he does them from a position that normally did not have that function. Now, I hear you say Andy Robertson is doing really well on the other flank. Why isn't he being described as redefining the role? Is it Scottish, uh, anti-Scottishism? No, it's um, it's because Andy Robertson is more of an orthodox fullback. Like, he goes on these overlapping runs, he gets crosses in, and there's a, a very interesting heat map that I saw recently, um, and it shows the areas from which Andy Robertson delivers his his crosses as opposed to where Trent Alexander-Arnold delivers his. Trent Alexander-Arnold is delivering way further back the field, much closer to the halfway line inside the middle of the park, really. It's amazing to me. And he's delivering passes and crosses and key passes with such a level of consistency and accuracy. And that's why I think he's redefining the fullback role. He is running the game from fullback. So I saw I actually saw a note on this, JJ, uh, from Ryan Baldi at Optusport, uh, who wrote he did a, a he basically talked about this very topic in an article he wrote back in March, um, and he compared Trent Alexander Arnold to Danny Alves, and he said he said this. So Trent Alexander Arnold at this point in time in March was averaging just over seventy attempted passes per ninety minutes in the Premier League this season. Danny Alves at his peak. Uh, in the 2011-12 La Liga season for Barcelona was 79.2 attempted passes per 90 minutes uh, for Barcelona that season. But here's the thing. Barcelona as a team averaged 714 attempted passes per game. That is over 100 more than what Liverpool averaged per game. Right. So Trent Alexander-Arnold is, was, is basically doing the same things that Danny Alves was doing at Danny Alves's peak. Right. And he's doing it as a 21-year-old on a team that doesn't even play close to the sort of passing style that no. Barcelona played at that point. So, you know, I, I, take, I take the – what was the guy's name who sent this email in? Barry? Barry. I take his point in that – I mean, for him to say it's outlandish that you would say this is maybe a bit extreme. I get what he's saying, though, in that Alexander Arnold's not necessarily the first player to do this. But I guess for him to be doing it at this age – uh, in a way that you can count on maybe two or three fingers, the number of fullbacks who in their prime played like this before. I, I think it's fair to say what what you said about him, honestly. Yeah, and, and and sometimes even where he gets the ball, he's like picks it up in the inside channel, almost like a center midfielder, and he's playing balls over the top or in behind or crossfield passes. I'm sorry, I've never seen anyone do that before. 
Um, okay, moving on. So our dear friend Anne, who is a regular contributor to the mailbag, she got a tour of White Hart Lane recently. Nice. And the re- the revelation that stuck with me from her description of the stadium is as follows, Andrew. Um, it was exciting to see exactly why our transfer budget is practically non-existent. Daniel Levy has his own massive glass bridge from his personal office building directly into the stadium. Nobody can use it but him. It's insane. So straight away, I've got this vision in my head of like, not not Daniel Levy's office, but like a Willy Wonka style, you know, the great glass elevator or glass stairs into this office. And, and, and then I started imagining Daniel Levy dressed up as Willy Wonka. And then the song came to me, Andrew, come with me and you'll be in a world of Europa League qualification. You're... <laughs> I want to laugh at that because it is funny, but you have to take it to a place that's hurtful. And I just <laughs> wish you weren't that way. But come um, here. What, what's your thoughts? I, I, we made fun of the cheese room. The cheese room never happened at White Hart Lane. It was in the plans. It never happened. And now we've got the great glass staircase. Hey, we'll eat Gouda all day and still lower the boom. One of my favorite lyrics from an unknown rapper. Um <laughs> <laughs> the uh, yeah the the great glass bridge uh i'd like to see it i wonder if you could google image this i'm surprised that this isn't a thing that's like more more known that's crazy All um, right. but uh i will say this because talking about tottenham's non-existent transfer budget they did just pull off a, a um a nice piece of budget business because they just got pierre emile hoiberg uh from southampton for basically three million he was 15 million but they sent kyle walker peters back the other way for 12 so you just picked up probably your new first team holding midfielder for three million. So yeah, we can we can mock them certainly, but that's that's pretty good. I'm excited about his career development under Mourinho. You, okay. you don't know how to have friends. You don't know how to That's true. I, I have very few friends. <laughs> um Mr. Hattrick Man. How in the world did those refs call a handball on Messi in his goal versus Napoli. Seriously, explain this to me. Love the pod, big fan. Thank you. Um, uh, I'd like to take this one. Go ahead. Uh, I believe the answer is I have no idea. No one no one knows the rules, and I think we're seeing more and more that that includes referees and VAR officials. Now, look, I think it definitely was a goal, a legitimate goal. I don't know what part of his arm, maybe like a hair on his arm, Oh, I mean, come on. Touched the skin of the ball. And it was such a good goal too. But like I said earlier in the podcast, Longley pushing Demay into Koulibaly so he could score that goal. I mean, the ref was really, by ruling out Messi's goal, he was evening up the scorecard in terms of bad VAR calls. It's been a terrible Champions League for VAR. I saw Messi apparently after the match refused to shake the referee's hand from that decision. Oh, really? Yeah. I saw him um, in the middle of the game explaining to Callahan what had happened. You know, they're on opposition team, and Callahan just nodded. Yeah, you're probably right, Messi. You know, <laughs> just like trying to explain away, and it didn't touch my hand. So he was clearly, uh, clearly upset by his piece of artistry being denied. Uh, Matt Sears, do you think the new EFL one and EFL two, uh, League one and League two salary cap is a good idea to help poorer clubs? Bury slash Bolton, or is 
it the league trying to force parity on the field. Um, so yeah, there's going to be a salary cap introduced. I don't have the details in front of me, but let's just talk about what's gone on in, you know, in terms of Wigan, Bury, Bolton. Something needs to be done, and I'm not sure the salary cap is it. I, I welcomed it at first. These teams were spending way beyond their means. But I think also as well, if you look at, uh, certainly in the case of Bury, certainly in the case of Bolton, and absolutely in the case of Wigan, good governance, oversight on who can own a club and who can run a football club, especially one in the lower reaches of English football, is probably more important than a salary cap. Like setting proper budgets internally and not mortgaging the future of a 150 or 120-year-old institution on the whims of some manager who wants to get to the Premier League, I think that's more important than the salary cap. I don't know now, what your thoughts are. Can, can I ask you a question? This is uh, this is an honest question. I'm, I I want to get educated. You may not know either, but Bury, Bolton, Wigan, like, have they found themselves in the dire financial straits that they have because of dramatically overpaying their players' wages? Like, are there players at Bury right now making like crazy sums of money that we couldn't even believe if we saw like the wage bill from that club? That's just like, it's hard for me to envision that those teams got to those situations because they're paying. And I know all things are relative, but I, it's just hard for me to envision like Bury has this massive wage budget for these yeah, players. But- I feel like that they found them without, again, I don't know. I haven't really read anything on this. So I'm kind of just speaking like off the top of my head here, but it just seems like they've probably found themselves in these situations for a variety of reasons. Yes, it is for a variety of reasons. But I also think, Andrew, that initially it would have started. I mean, it's it's no coincidence that it's Bolton and um, Wigan who've been been relegated in the last, what, last five, uh, seven, eight years. Or in the case of Bolton, well, it's probably closer to a decade. Um, it's it's no surprise that that these teams initially probably had Premier League wages and tried to keep players and pay those players to get back up. You know, there's this vortex of the Premier League that everyone's trying to get into, and um, it certainly has an adverse influence on the way clubs manage their budgets. But maybe we'll return to that one, Matt, in time. I'm, I'm sure we will. Um, Robert at Sunny SoCal, Rob, have you had the opportunity to watch the new Netflix documentary Anelka? misunderstood so i tweeted out about this nicholas and elka documentary i said i would review it i said i would watch it and i haven't done it yet because i would like you to have done it as well andrew because it's not as much it's not as much fun me just talking about it if you haven't seen it i i will see it i will watch it i promise what but going into it what what what's your thoughts on an elka uh really good player for I don't know, kind of like a short peak, um, temperamental. Yeah. Um, Liz Sulk. Okay. Yeah. That too. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I, I'd be curious to watch this because maybe he is more of a um, complicated figure than what we realize. Finally, Andrew, uh, Darna Lee. Greetings, gents. Your opinions. What is the toughest type of shot to take? And he also attached a video of uh, Charisma, who was the, how would you describe it? The king of the outside of the boot shot into the bottom slash top corner. Yeah. Toughest shot for you, Andrew. What would you say it is? I'm going to go, I'm going to go Rabona. 
<laughs> I have tried to do it in my living room and I nearly snapped my ankle. Um, yeah. So I think that the Rabona is not only difficult, but unlike the outside of the boot and some other shots, it's also potentially dangerous. And kind of stupid. <laughs> You're right. There's never really a time when it makes sense to do it. No. Uh, but like... The only time it makes... Like, Sorry to cut across you. Go on. Yeah. No, no, no. I was going to say, like, it doesn't ever really make sense to do. Just ask Wabi Kazri. Oh. YouTube that for anyone who doesn't remember. Um and yet, like, I still have kind of, like, tons of respect for guys who, who have the nerve to try it. I, I think it makes sense if you're a left-footed player or, alternatively, a right-footed player on your wrong side and you have no trust in your, in your say, your, for me, it would be my left side. So if you whip around your right foot, does that compensate for not having a left foot? I don't know. No, it can't. You can like how many times would it take you to do it to make one accurate pass or one one potentially accurate shot? Like there's just it's no, not I've very never, it's not very efficient. No, I mean I remember seeing Eric Lamella do it in the Europa League um, several years ago, and it was I didn't even realize what happened at first. Like it, it took two or three replays for me to understand that he like whipped his own leg around his other leg to shoot and score the way that he, like it was, it was crazy. I, but yeah, uh, so don't, it's one of those, uh, don't try this at home. I did it. What I did it once, Andrew, and instead of getting any contact on the ball, the ball was too far away. I stubbed my toe into the ground. <laughs> Just a farce. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I'm going to finish up with my, I, I think it's the full volley off a driven pass from a corner you got to catch that thing perfectly. Remember Aaron Robbins goal at Old Trafford for Bayern Munich? Uh, yes, I do. Um, that to me is the toughest. That's, that's the hardest shot. Yeah. I suppose like you say specifically off a corner, like I also, this wasn't off a corner, but I also think of Zidane's in the champions league final, uh, when the ball's basically like, well, that thing fell from like 15 yards up straight down and he caught it. Careless. Yeah. Right. Uh, so I guess that's kind of like of a similar vein. No, that's very true. That's the technique it takes to do something like that is incredible. That's great. That's the male BZ. There you go. Uh, just about finished here. I guess before we go, we should, speaking of the Europa League, mention that Wolves are out and in really, really crushing fashion. Um, I saw Nuno Espirito Santo had to come to the defense of Raul Jimenez, which is sad that he even felt the need to do that because Raul Jimenez has been just such an unbelievable player for them. But he missed a penalty early in this game and they wound up losing one nil when Sevilla scored late. Uh, oof, it's, that's rough. <laughs> I think, I think Wolves really believe that they could win this tournament. Um, and look, just because they lost this game didn't mean that they were crazy to think that, but uh, man, it's, that's a gut punch for sure. Their season began on the 25th of July, 2019. So I think I saw a, a number and people could do the math with what you just said. I think it was something like a 383 day season for wolves. It's insane. <laughs> Absolutely insane. Yeah. And, um, and United got through in their game against Copenhagen with a penalty typically. And uh, the Copenhagen goalkeeper just stood on his head. He had 13 saves in the game. He was absolutely outstanding. And some of them, quite a lot of them were point blank. Unbelievable performance. But United, they roll on. Yep, they sure do. Uh, so we'll monitor that. That's about it. Um, JJ, I, I have good news for you. 
and for all of our listeners who have really had a hard time listening to me. So people like, I don't know if people just didn't believe that I ordered a microphone or what. They didn't. I, I said it like probably two months ago. You would not believe the amount of headache having to speak to people in warehouses and like shipping agents and things like that. I don't understand why this has been so difficult, but um, I'm on, I'm not at home right now, but friends of ours um, walked by our house the other day because they were like bringing in our, our trash. They said they would bring our trash bins in and they saw that the microphone arrived and it's on my front doorstep. Um, so the next time you hear my voice, <sighs> it will be spectacular sound. Oh, brilliant. So you'll no longer sound, sound like you're in a barrel in Connecticut. Right. Instead, my whiny, nasally tone will be coming to you in clear, high definition. <laughs> oh, here's Andrew. So you have that to look forward to. Um, oh, yeah. boy. Yep. But uh, so, yeah, this uh, and next week, of course, we'll have more Champions League to discuss uh, because this this tournament, you know, we were talking before about MLS is back and the way that tournament was structured. Um, I will say that condensing the Champions League into like a World Cup or European Championship format where it's played just like frenetically over the span of a couple weeks is not the worst thing that I have ever seen. Not I am. I'm not saying there's any way you can do it permanently, but it's it's kind of awesome. Andrew, if tonight was the appetizer, or, or even the weekend's games were the appetizer for what's to come, we are in for a treat. Oh, yeah. Of course we are. I mean, this tournament is always awesome. Now just like take the whole thing and put it in a, in a week and a half time frame, and it will be just as or more awesomer than before i'm sorry if i've been uh out of it since the mailbag started but ever since you did the daniel levy willy wonka i've just been in my head trying to place other tottenham figures like within the context of who they would be in the willy wonka analogy and it's like really driving me crazy that i can't figure out like so is Mourinho charlie or is he like more of like a a villainous um a villainous like He's probably more of a Veruca Salt. So th- I don't, I'm just verbalizing now what, what's been going on in my head for the last 15 minutes. Who's Augustus Gloop? <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, who would that be? Tange in <laughs> uh, But he's not like, I don't. <laughs> Come with me and you'll be in a world of Europa League qualification. And, and meanwhile, here I am just playing the role of every Oompa Loompa. <laughs> just sadly going along. If you want to taste Champions League, you should probably forget it. Give the ball to Harry Kane, he'll head it. Long balls forever, you won't regret it. You <laughs> You need help. You know that you're not a good person. Like, <laughs> all right. Hey, at any rate, to you I say, check you later, fun boy. Yeah, take care. You've been listening to the Caught Offside Soccer Podcast. <laughs>